0: Welcome to the third statewide call-in show as part of Connecting the Drops, a collaboration on Colorado water issues with the Colorado Foundation for Water Education and Rocky Mountain Community Radio Stations. I'm Maeve
1: Conran at KGNU in Boulder. And I'm January Jones at KDNK in Carbondale. Today we're looking at the statewide water plan. The first full draft of Colorado's water plan was released on December 10th in 2014 and a final draft is expected by the end of the year. Joining me in the KTNU studio is Jim Polkrant with the Colorado River Water Conservation District. Jim is the Colorado Basin Roundtable Chair.
0: And joining me in the KGNU studio in Boulder is James Eklund, director of the Colorado Water Conservation Board. James Eklund has the task of overseeing the first comprehensive water plan in the state's history. And joining us by phone is Chris Woodka, who covers water issues for the Pueblo Chieftain. James Eklund, as I said, it is you who has been tasked with creating the state's first ever water plan. A draft of that plan went to the governor's office just some weeks ago. A final version is expected by the end of 2015. It's a big, big plan. It's a big, big draft. But could you give us a general overview, certainly the main points and particularly those that pertain to members of the public? Because really, we're trying to inspire and engage members of the public to get involved in the water plan.
2: You bet, Maeve. Thanks for the opportunity. This is a great uh, forum and a great uh, radio show to to have the discussion uh, penetrate, you know, beyond the the normal echo chamber of the water community that we normally get ourselves into. Uh, five days of meetings and around water are going to be taking place down in the tech center uh, this coming week, and so your your timing is perfect. Uh, uh, really, I, I have to just uh, go back and, and correct a little uh, bit of, of the leading question there, though, and that is uh, that, that I was tasked to do this water plan. Uh, that's what makes it uh, unique and, and really special in Colorado and, and in policymaking in general, I think, it, it's that we've got a grassroots process that has been set up since 2005. It's been in operation with basin roundtables. Uh, that have been covered extensively by, by Chris Woodka, your uh, participant from Pueblo on this show. And then obviously, uh, Jim Polkranton, the Colorado River District have been uh, heavy participants on the Western Slope. So we uh, we really have a structure here that is grassroots in nature and allows us to have conversations about uh, our most vital resource and, and sometimes our most emotional uh, topic. Uh, and uh, this water plan, we're, we're hoping is the uh, the first uh, of a series of conversations that Carl uh, that are not water wonks have about the resource that they all use every single day. So with that, let me get to your question, which was a quick overview of the water plan. Uh, first off, just go to www.coloradowaterplan.com, and you will uh, find an executive summary that is not long, it's manageable. We tried to write it in, uh, you know, not in water ease, so to speak. We tried to write it in a, in a with a narrative that people would uh, understand if they're not from the water background, and if you go through it, um, then you can really dive into the chapters that are of interest to you. Uh, We have, you know, starting at the very front, uh, chapter one talks about our introduction and our goal, and really we have a bunch of challenges in the water space that we're we're, uh, tackling, uh, and those have manifested themselves. Uh, throughout our statehood, but really in, in the way we have uh, experienced them in the last 10 years, it's, it's made it really clear that those challenges aren't going away. In fact, they're probably getting uh, more and more uh, uh, robust. And so we need to have a, sustra- a, a sustained and uh, systemic answer to, to them. And that's what this plan is about. So you have the first chapter talking about those challenges, uh, systemic drought, Uh, Legal And then Chapter 2 sets up our legal and our uh, institutional structure uh, that we find ourselves in in Colorado, a local control state with property tax, uh, sorry, property law applying to water rights. And so we have private property uh, in those water rights. Uh, Then we get to supply and demand and overviews of our of all our basins that were written not by bureaucrats in Denver, but by people uh, in the basins themselves. And and uh, Jim Polkrant and the River District were heavily involved in that, too. Uh, and then we get to Chapters uh, 6 through the end, which is r- really uh, uh, 6 through 11, that are the, the bread and butter of the action that we can take as a state. And And that's where the exciting stuff is, Uh, you know, talking about the supply side uh, for a second. We have water about 14 million acre-feet if you want to think think about it in really rough terms. falls on the state of Colorado every year. And we have access to about a third of that because we're a headwater state, 18 downstream states depend on water that starts here in Colorado. So two-thirds of our water through one by function of one of those nine interstate compacts that we have with those other states. Uh, Two thirds of our water is required to exit the state, so that that really you know sets up uh, the uh, the challenge in supply, uh, and then on demand we have a population that's growing. We're going to hit 10 million people between 2050 and 2060, if uh, if current trends suggest. Uh, uh, you know, if current trends are kept, and, and that's that's something that, you know, uh, over half that growth is going to come from our own kids, people that live here in Colorado. So I've got three kids. One of them's named Maeve Maeve. So uh, I, I guess I'm part of that problem. Uh, six and seven uh, are the chapters that really get into that. Uh, how, how are we going to confront this uh, uh, this this gap, this looming gap between supply and demand, and then we get into the Colorado Way Forward, which we think is uh, setting up uh, a way to safeguard our water and and use it and, and manage it and have a discussion with Coloradans that is open, it's transparent, and it gets us to uh, a path that we all uh, look back at and say that that was the right thing to do.
0: We're going to give out lots of information during the show as to how members of the public can continue to weigh in on the water plan. But James, I'm just going to ask you a quick follow up question before we get to our our other guests. Given the overview of the draft plan that you've just uh, discussed there, what aspects of the plan do you think need the most public discussion before they're settled. Are there still things that are very much up in the air and that the public really needs to get to grips with?
2: Absolutely. Maybe one of the first things that I encourage people to do is just get informed on the topic. It's it you know, I I feel I know that there are barriers to, to grabbing a hold of a, a topic that is the lore and the complexity of water law in Colorado. But don't let that uh, dissuade you from from getting involved in this conversation. It's a lot like healthcare. I I really need healthcare to work effectively uh, personally, but it's so complex and convoluted that sometimes I just turn that over to my healthcare professional and hope they figure it all out. Water is sometimes treated the same way, uh, but I we're, we're really trying to break down barriers to entry to this conversation and. Uh, I'm really interested in uh, you know, radio shows like this and other places where we get outside the water echo chamber and, and have a discussion.
0: Well, if you could just maybe briefly mention a couple of points that you think are very pertinent to the public, yeah. you know, whether it's conservation, whether it's yeah. policy, what do you really think the public needs to get involved yeah, in? Yeah, so
2: in dealing with those challenges that we have, we have a number of tools that are at our disposal. One of them is conservation, and the governor said time and time again, every con- conversation about water needs to start with conservation because that's Something we can do. The the less we use, the the smaller the gap between supply and demand is. So that's that's fundamental. Uh, But it won't solve all the problems for us. So we've got to look at a package of solutions. And some of those other uh, points that we need people to engage on are, you know, the agricultural uh, uh, market and the farms and ranches on the Eastern Plains and on the Western Slope uh, are the places where the market goes to for people who are thirsty or municipalities that are thirsty to get water. They get into transaction with those egg producers. And that the trajectory that we're on is uh, so much of that land being bought and dried, we call it buy and dry, you know, where you buy the the, the uh, land and the water rights and then you transfer the water off of the land. We know that that's not a sustainable thing. We, we know that Coloradans are, uh, you know, they, they value their food growing locally and uh, they value seeing where it comes from. and that's uh that's something that we think is is a trend that will continue so we need people to engage on well if if we're not going to get as if we're not going to take as much water from the uh, irrigated agricultural sector where is that water going to come from and how much of it are we going to use so conservation egg by and dry uh you know, every year we take around 500,000 acre feet from the western slope where 70 to 80 percent of our precipitation falls every year, and we bring it to the eastern side of the state where 90 percent of our population is. And that, you know, through 25 to 30 trans mountain diversion tunnels and ditches. And that is something that we need people uh, to engage on because, you know, that's that's, a uh, a practice that a lot of people on the Western Slope get very, very nervous about. I'm originally from the Western Slope, and, uh, you know, you don't want to balance the back of, you know, balance the solutions for these challenges or to these challenges on the back of the Western Slope. You, you know, you've got to grow differently. We, we start talking about land use uh, patterns here real quick, Maeve, and that's, uh, that's something we need people to engage on, too.
0: That's James Eklund, director of the Colorado Water Conservation Board. My guest here at the KGNU studio is part of our
1: Connecting the Drops call show. Over now to January Jones at KDNK. Thank you, Maeve. And I'm here with Jim Polkrand from the Colorado Water Conservation District. And in listening to this conversation, we're talking about the Western Slope where we are here. Uh, Jim, what do you think about the perspective of people in the Western Slope, how that might be different from the rest of Colorado?
3: Well, the, the issue is future water development. As James pointed out, we already send about 500,000 acre-feet or more to the front, front to the Front Range through transmountain diversions. And there's pressure in the four tools that James talked about to build another big transmountain diversion at some point. Some would hope sooner than later. the The issue is that in, in all of Colorado that uses Colorado River water, yet you have an interest in the Colorado River Compact, which actually puts a ceiling on how much water can be developed before down-basin states say, hey, you're not sending enough to us. So the concern is if we go to a big transmountain diversion without being very thoughtful and understanding hydrology, without using the water resources that we currently have, we could overdevelop the river, and that puts West Slope agriculture in jeopardy. And in the event of a compact curtailment, which would be still f- fairly far off, West Slope Ag could be the sacrifice zone. But what's what's interesting in the current day is that because of declining hydrology, um, we're looking at lake levels in Mead and Powell, um, two big issues on the Colorado River that take care of upper basin interest and lower basin interest. And there's a concern that lower levels in these reservoirs could, force, um, reduce power generation if cut it off altogether at Powell, and which could send uh, um, Lake Mead below the level where late, um, Las Vegas could take water. So right now we're talking about how to deal with that in the current current time. So it's interesting that we're worried about lake levels. We're talking about how perhaps conservation, voluntary conservation, demand management might be something to, Deal with that, and at the same time, um, we want to think about perhaps another big transmountain diversion. So the larger issues is has to deal with the compact, but right here today, uh, foreshadowing that issue are uh, operational issues that could affect um, Colorado.
1: Well, putting it into simpler terms for the public, are we talking about having to redefine how we live and use water? Do we have a, an identity issue here? Are we in denial that we are in an arid climate in Colorado? I
3: don't know if we're in de- denial. Um, it's it's just not the 1950s or 60s anymore where uh, there was plenty of water and there was good water projects and we could landscape as if we still lived in where we got 40 inches of rain. A lot of us um, came from other areas. But Colorado is arid. You get 5 to 6 inches in some places, 12 to 13 in others. And fortunately, high up in the mountains, you can get 40 to 6 inches. So that's been our salvation o- over time. So since it's not the way it used to be, we have to look ahead more creatively. And James uh, raised the land use issue. That- that's an important one. So really in the future, I think it's going to be a contest of how much outdoor landscaping do we want in wall-to-wall carpeting, looking like we were from around Chicago or North Carolina or Philadelphia, or how much do we want to reckon with where we live?
1: A major issue in this discussion is about agriculture. Chris Woodka with the Pueblo Chieftain. You've been reporting on water issues in Colorado for 30 years. And you have some some keen insights into how uh, agriculture and water issues have affected your area.
4: Yeah, um, I uh, thank you for letting me be on this show. Um, I I have uh, found over the years that I, I thought Jim Pokrant's uh, comment on overdeveloping the river was interesting because ours has been overdeveloped for some time, and uh, in fact, because of interstate compacts and because of um, uh, buying expeditions by large cities down in the Arkansas Valley. We've already lost about 150,000 acres of farmland that uh, at one time uh, provided a good economy for the people down here. Uh, I, I think that uh, the, the state water plan, I, its first goal is to meet the gap in, in the cities, and its second is to stop the buy-and-drive agriculture. In the Arkansas Valley, you can come see the buy-and-drive of agriculture. Uh, You can go to Crowley County, and you can can see businesses that aren't there anymore and, uh, you know, just basically a a dying Main Street. Uh, We don't want any more of that to happen in the Arkansas Valley, and that's been our uh, emphasis on, you know, I think our roundtable has – basically uh, come down pretty hard saying that uh, we need to recognize the economic value of agriculture as well as these other values in the the state. And I think agriculture water was taken for so long because it was the easiest water to take. Yeah, the other day I was talking to a a 75-year-old farmer and he said uh, we were at we were asleep at the switch in the 1980s when that happened. Um, and so as well as looking ahead, I think in the Arkansas ba- Valley, we're always looking back and trying to um, you know, discover ways that, that we can use water more intelligently where we don't dry up entire communities.
1: And that's Chris Woodcock from the Pueblo Chieftain. Thank you for that perspective where you, your area has been really hit with that, that loss of water, the impact on what was farmland now now can't have those same uh, purposes of the water. We're going to throw right. it back to Maeve at KGNU. Thank
0: you, January. Thanks to uh, all of our listeners tuning in all around the state here to KGNU. KDNK, KRCC, KPUT and many other Rocky Mountain Community Radio stations. We're going to just take a brief pause to let stations identify themselves. Just a reminder, you're listening to a statewide call-in show on Connecting the Drops. It's a year-long collaboration with the Colorado Foundation for Water Education and Rocky Mountain Community Radio stations. I'm Maeve Conran at the KGNU Studios in Boulder with my guest, James Eklund, Director of the Colorado Water Conservation Board. At the KDNK studio, we have Jim Poe with the colorado river water conservation district and joining us by phone is chris woodka he covers water issues for the pueblo chieftain we'll be right back here on connecting the drops <music>
1: Welcome back to our statewide call show looking at the water plan for Colorado. I'm January Jones at Katie and Kagan Carbondale with guest Jim Polkran and the Colorado River Water Conservation District. Jim is the Colorado Basin Roundtable Chair. And
0: I'm Maeve Conran at the KGNU studio with James Eklund, who is the director of the Colorado Water Conservation Board. And joining us by phone, we have Chris Woodka, who covers water issues for the Pueblo Chieftain. We do have calls coming in from around the state, and we're going to go to our first caller, Rita from Trinidad. Welcome to the show. Hello.
4: Yeah, so we had a problem here in Trinidad Lake. I don't know if you understood. They drained the lake twice to kill the bad fish. And uh, this is our range lake, Monument Lake, and uh, they've actually turned into trans-species fish. Um, so uh, there, there is a monumental issue, and not just that it's named Monument Lake, but about Colorado and its people and what happens when we are invaded on our border here. So do you understand what the significance of trans-species fish in Monument Lake is? I would like to ask all the panelists that.
0: Well, we will go to James Ackland first what's your uh, knowledge or your understanding of uh, trans species fish
2: you bet me so uh, you know th- the issue is uh, something that our Colorado Division of Parks and Wildlife deals with daily uh, the invasive species and uh, you can you can talk about it in terms of a fish or uh invertebrates or uh, the uh, the mussels the the quagga mussel and and the invasive species that really get into these systems and and we have a really hard time it's a costly endeavor to try and get rid of them and in the process some of them uh, in a, you know will go ahead and consume some of the endangered fish that we' are really trying uh, again spending a lot of money and time and energy to try and preserve so uh, it, it is a it's a big issue it's in Pretty much every river basin in the state, uh, and I, I can uh, I can tell you that Colorado Parks and Wildlife has a, a team of folks that really uh, roll up their sleeves on a daily basis and take that on.
0: Is is this something that the water plan can address? I mean, this seems to be different from the rather uh, huge topic of just the quantity of water that's yeah. not really available to the state.
2: Yeah, it's. Uh, my I'm fine to saying maybe when you when you pull. Uh, the thread you get the sweater in water. And it means that, you know you can really touch almost anything uh, having to do with any topic. And this is really directly related to reservoir storage and how we manage our our storage. So we know that we we uh, if we're going to see a uh, continuation of the two degree warming we've seen over the last twenty to thirty years in Colorado, that our hydrograph is going to shift to earlier. We're going to have earlier runoff, and that means that we have to store very wide and at existing storage uh, capacity is is uh, directly related to what's growing in those reservoirs so and and the fish that are downstream of them.
0: Well, Rita, thanks very much for calling in from Trinidad. We have a lot of callers from all around the state waiting to join us, but I just want to ask Chris Woodker, who writes about water issues for the Pueblo Chieftain. Chris, we've really been talking about how the public can be engaged with the water plan. I know that you were attending some of the public meetings and the build-up to the release of the first draft. What do you feel about public engagement? I mean, how do you feel, member? of the public are responding to it what were some of the concerns you were hearing at some of those public meetings
1: okay um
4: yeah i i uh, really appreciated james uh, Eklund's comment about uh, you know the echo chamber because that's the most noticeable thing that i um, <clears throat> that i've learned from going to all these water meetings that were held for probably 15 months um, in advance of drafting the uh, the draft of the state water plan and uh, you saw a lot of new people coming into the conversation. There were people um, from Werfano County who, who had uh, concerns about produced water. There were people from um, yeah, farming communities who had concerns about their communities. And we got people from all over the basin involved. I think in the old days, uh, when we did water, when I did water stories, I would mainly be talking to utility managers and state officials. And I think a lot of new voices uh, came out in this. I think we particularly heard more from the recreational and environmental communities, and um, you know, other other people that you just didn't used to see at water meetings. We have more. Uh, public officials county commissioners who are coming to these meetings so it, i I just have seen a, a large influx of different types of people that we uh, never never saw at these meetings before come in and and start talking about water and that's to a water reporter that makes me uh, feel really grateful because a lot of times uh, i i feel like i'm i'm writing this for a specific audience but it does uh, reach a lot of people.
0: And, Chris, did you see any commonality amongst the concerns being echoed or, excuse me, being voiced by the general public at these water meetings?
4: Well, it, it's a lot like uh, that old story about six, six guys and an, six blind men and an elephant. Um, a lot of people are focused on their own uh, concerns and needs to the point of excluding the uh, concerns and needs of other people. And I, I think what I saw at nearly every every meeting was kind of an openness where people would actually uh, listen to each other. Uh, a lot of the discussions and and these meetings, you know, the roundtable meetings go back 10 years. And at first, it, probably the first five years of roundtable meetings, uh, you had a bunch of people in a room who were. Uh, issuing position statements or uh, on on their particular part of the elephant, and what happened, uh, oh, about five years ago, was that uh, there was a lot more listening started to go on, and people would listen and try to understand the concerns, and that also, uh, I think, made people realize that that their positions didn't have to be stated so forcefully. And that they became more strategic in the way they started talking about water as well. Uh, it's it's been a very uh, it water is a very complicated subject. But as James said, it's just like healthcare, and I was thinking the same thing today, today too. But I, I think that when uh, when you talk when you start talking about uh, the issues, then you be, you gain more understanding of it, and it's not so mystifying. And I think that's. That's been a good
0: thing. Chris Woodke writes about water issues for the Pueblo Chieftain. I'd like to go next to our callers. We have somebody calling in from Colorado Springs. Welcome to the show. What's your question or comment?
5: Oh, great. I was wondering if you could comment on uh, gray waters systems for residential. Um, I know Colorado recently passed some resolution. Uh, it's pretty hard for people to pull permits to install gray water for residential. And uh, also, can you tell me or clarify, is it legal to collect rainwater or uh, harvest rainwater?
0: Great questions. I'm going to throw those to James Eklund. Uh, what about this harvesting rainwater and also gray water, particularly for uh, residents?
2: You bet. So let's take the gray water one first. Uh, Greywater systems are discussed in the water plan. Uh, let's see. I'm going to flip open my chapter that I have here. It's chapter six and specifically 6.3 that talks about conservation and reuse. And, you know, we have a number of touch points. Uh for gray water systems to be talked about. One is the codes that uh, are adopted at the local level, uh, building codes. And um, you know, when you pull those permits, how arduous is it? And, you know, is there incentive to, to you know, retrofit your existing uh, infrastructure so that you can take advantage of what we now know about gray water systems and the technology is changing all the time. So we need to be able to harness that. So that point is taken uh, very, very well. and. Uh, it's something that we're, we're going to continually have to work on and try and make it easier for people to utilize those gray water systems. In the city of Denver, I know that they put in purple pipe. Uh, that's the, the color that the code requires. Uh, the uh, kind of the uniform building code requires for gray water systems. And uh, when we reuse water in in uh, Denver or anywhere around the front range, that's that's helpful because a lot of that water, is uh, transmountain water from the western slope, and it needs to be used as efficiently and effectively as possible. Uh, the rainwater harvesting question is uh, is o- always uh, an interesting one because you would think uh, putting a barrel outside my house, what, what, you know, why would that be a problem? And sometimes it isn't. And, and there's a, a pilot uh, rainwater harvesting program going on uh, as we speak that we're we're uh, continuing to collect data from uh, a pilot that's going on down in the Sterling Ranch area in the southwest metro part of uh, Denver and uh, the uh, the but the answer is it's uh, you know it's it's illegal to use water that you don't have a uh, property right to use and the uh, the example that you can you can kind of think of is taking an entire metropolitan areas runoff rainwater. And uh, you know, what do you do with that? If you hold on to that and, and consumptively use it, well, again, Colorado's uh, shaped uh, as a headwater state, and our water is used four, five, six, seven, eight times before it gets out of the state. So the people downstream really rely on what we kind of refer to as return flows. Sometimes we call them stormwater runoff. And our legal regime, our administration of uh, you know, when you can or can't use water has grown up around that that uh, that system uh, of protecting the people downstream and their right to use it in priority. So the rainwater harvesting question is a great one, and I, we're going to learn more, just like with the water question, about that moving forward. And this water plan is a chance for us to hear a comment like the one you just heard from Colorado Springs And, uh, you know, figure out uh, how we can enable and incentivize people to effectively and efficiently use water, maybe outdoor if they catch it uh, and collect it, Uh, and there's not a, a, like I said, an injury being caused to somebody downstream.
0: That's James Eklund, director of the Colorado Water Conservation Board. He's my guest here at the KGNU studio in Boulder and one of our guests on this statewide call-in show on the Colorado Water Plan. Back
1: now to January Jones at KDNK. Well, in talking about the gray water and rainwater collections, we've talked about this a little bit. Um, Jim Pokran, I have here with me at KDK. What has to happen at, at a municipal level to enable those things or to try to start doing more water conservation for towns and cities?
3: The, the water plan actually addresses conservation um, in, in depth. There, there's a lot of words like will and and should and there's you know i don't think in the whole water plan you see the word shall so in our state um a local control state where it's been up to the municipals municipalities to develop water who have done a great job i mean we are the state that we are because of the work that's been done to date so the whole idea of conservation is how much can we how much water can we gain to support future development and not go to the river so much and not go to agriculture. So the Colorado Water Conservation Board did some technical work and they, they pointed out that at a high level of conservation, we can develop 461,000 acre feet. Um, that goes a long way to a 500 or 600,000 acre foot gap. The question is, how can we get there in a concerted, unified way? And the water plan, as I said, brings up a lot of ways that this could be done, and but it really doesn't fall down on one thing that says this is it. And at this point, it probably shouldn't, given the state that that we that we're in. Nevertheless, the plan does identify a medium level of statewide water conservation that could develop about 170,000 acre feet of sa- of savings. We we on the west slope and other west slope roundtables are hoping that. We, we can aim more closely to that 461,000 acre foot goal now how, how does that get done in, in a place where conservation and systems are um, very different and uh, at higher success levels or not and, and that's the million dollar question which to the water plans credit um, it, it bring, brings up but um, looking at that 461,000 acre foot number um, that, that's a that's a good place for the state to look for more water and thus protecting the river and agriculture. How it gets done, that's the question.
1: Thank you, Jim Pokran, the Colorado River Water Conservation District. We have another caller on the line. We have Chuck from Boulder. Chuck, do you have a question you'd like to ask our panelists?
5: Hello, panel. Uh, many thanks for your presentations. I think we're all acquainted. The uh, issue I'd like you to address is uh, the fact that with all of our water shortage, uh, Weld County and the South Platte Basin generally has more water than they know what to do with. The water tables are at all time highs. Uh, we're delivering much more water to Nebraska than we're required to by state, I uh, mean, by interstate compact. Uh, isn't there some way that we can more intelligently use this to help close those gaps?
1: Jim, would you like to respond to that?
3: Well, um, that's on the other side of the divide, and that's not a new argument. And the que- the question is storage, the will to build storage and, you know, the possible or financial uh, means to do that. And certainly um, I'm not an expert on the South Platte, but in, in general, the West Slope would hope that all basins would best use their water resources at hand before looking to other basins, f- for their, quote, new supply. Mm-hmm. So, so maybe uh, James could uh, give a better shot at that.
1: <laughs> James b- Eklund, do you have a comment?
2: You bet. Chuck, it's good to hear your voice. Uh, what uh, y- Your question's right on, and the South Platte has a, you uh, uh, we know, we, we place a, a premium on conjunctive use is what we call it in in the South Platte. It's the kind of, you know, joint administration of groundwater and surface water. And the point that Chuck brings up is that there's more water passing the Julesburg gauge, which is the gauge of reference on our compact on the South Platte Mm -hmm. uh, every, you know, most years we, we see more water go past that gauge than we're required to let go and so uh you know we are in the in the plan itself we we said, you know, we see this as an issue, uh, but, uh, you know, again, to kind of the, the point that Jim Polkrant raised uh, earlier, we, we, we could, you know, wrestle this to the ground and tell you what we think we should do, but we uh, really empowered the roundtables to take on these issues that are in their basin and describe them, uh, try and analyze them, and then figure out solutions to them. And so we're deploying quite a bit of resources on the ground, uh, either to study the ground groundwater situation in the South Platte uh, or to try and figure out how we better uh, administer surface water so that we're, uh, you know, we're we're really using the water that we're allowed to use legally uh, as efficiently and effectively as possible. So uh, I appreciate that question. Uh, Colorado uh, is, uh, you know, planning for these, you know, whether we're planning for one or two or five million more people uh, moving here we uh, We need to be doing strategic planning and uh, to, to address the issue that that Chuck did just raised. Mm-hmm.
0: That's James Eklund. He is the director of the Colorado Water Conservation Board. And he is one of our guests here at Connecting the Drops, our statewide call-in show. We're going to take a break now for stations to identify themselves. And we'll be right back with callers from around the state. We've got Bruce and Littleton standing by. We've got uh, Jim standing by and more calls uh, coming in. You are listening to a statewide call-in show, Connecting the Drops with kgnu kdnk and many other stations in the rocky mountain community radio network stay tuned
1: Welcome back to our statewide call-in show looking at the Colorado water plan. I'm January Jones from KDNK in Carbondale. And I'm Maeve
0: Conran at KGNU in Boulder, and we have lots of calls coming in. My guest here at the KGNU studio is James Eklund, who is director of the Colorado Water Conservation Board. And we also have joining us by phone, Chris Woodke. He covers water issues for the Pueblo Chieftain. And actually, I would like to bring Chris on before we go back to our callers. Chris, we're hearing from people all around the state. And as we've heard earlier, people are you know, have very specific concerns according to where they live. Do you have confidence that the public's voice um, will be heard when it comes to the final water plan, given that you have been talking to members of the public, that you've been going to some of these public meetings? I mean, do you feel that the public is really getting an opportunity to weigh in here and their voices will be heard?
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they're engaged more than they have been in the past. Um, whether they'll be heard, uh, I think, depends on the political will of the state, and I can't predict how that will go. Um, I, I've always said that crisis spawn action in in water projects and, uh, you know, a slow, gradual growth, it's great that we're planning for that. But what, as you saw with the floods that that happened in the South Platte Basin and the issue that uh, we were just discussing about the high water tables on the South Platte. Um, in terms of a policy, you don't know how long those high water tables will continue. You do know that it, um, you can you can pump the you can pump the water out and use it while it it's there. And I, I you know I guess just maybe the state water plan will give us a, a framework to discuss how that can be done and how it can be done more quickly. Uh, One of the things that James brought up during a lot of the meetings on the state water plan was that it used to take, uh, as a rule of thumb for a big water project, that used to take three years and $3 million to build, will now take 10 years and $10 million to build. Um, that's that's a kind of an exponential growth that's caused by a number of things: regulation, more people jumping into the conversation, um, and that sort of thing. But if we can if we can have conversations where we don't have to keep talking the same issues uh, down until until everybody's satisfied, and if we have like a framework we can operate out of, I think that would be a big advantage.
0: That's Chris Woodka, who covers water issues for the Pueblo Chieftain. I'd like to go back to our callers. Bruce and Littleton, welcome to the show. What's your question or comment?
4: question is for James Eklund. James, what role do you see produced water playing in Colorado's future?
0: Thanks
2: for the question, Bruce. Uh, produced water is obviously the, uh, if some of the callers don't know, is the water that is really uh, in the way of the uh, extraction of uh you know mineral resources out of the out of the ground. So when you when you frack a well, you you know go down and, and you might hit water that's under pressure and that is sometimes heavily saline and you've got to get that out of the way. And so you bring it up and then there's a question of what to do with it. And if it's if it is heavily saline sometimes this water is you know is not too bad sometimes it's uh, much more saline than than ocean water and so you've got to treat it and make sure that it's of its quality is sufficient but uh, if you're producing enough of it then you can actually start to move the needle on water availability in a in a particular uh, you know micro basin so to speak so uh, the treatment. My my understanding is the treatment technology is is starting to catch up with the industry, and we're starting to see some pretty innovative stuff come out uh, about how to remove the salts and the uh, other things you don't want in your drinking water from the uh, produced water. And the quicker that technology uh, grows and expands, I think the you know the quicker we will we'll see uh, uh, more. Uh, more basins taking it into account as part of their portfolio.
0: That's James Eklund, Director of the Colorado Water Conservation Board. Back now to January Jones at KDNK.
1: Thank you, Maeve. We do have someone joining us on Twitter. They wanted to make a comment, Andy Lyon. He says he enjoys uh, water here in Colorado Springs, but he opposes more trans-mountain diversions. He thinks there's got to be a better way. I wanted to throw it to Jim Pokran, who joins me here in the KDNK studios up here in Carbondale. Um, we kind of feel up here that we make all the water sometimes, right? We've got the mountains. We have to deal with all the snow. And it becomes a point of contention sometimes uh, with everybody else on the eastern slope. How do you think we need to frame that issue so it's not so adversarial?
3: At least for this season, I wish we were having more snow to be talking about. But for sure, what folks in all of Colorado should understand is that the high mountain snowpack is the biggest reservoir in the state. That snowpack above 9,000 acre-feet. So um, whether it's on the Continental Divide or, or elsewhere uh, that is the major source of renewable water in, in Colorado and that was long ago recognized by the folks on the Front Range and that's why they, they've built um, at least 13 major trans mountain diversions and and many more smaller ones so th- that water source is still what's um, being being targeted but we have to remember that we have to share that water source with a down basin states as James said 18 other states but certainly on the West Slope with uh, six other states and even the Republic of Mexico so um, this is also the water on the West Slope that all the folks are on I-70 driving up to every weekend and uh, driving home slowly perhaps but they're recreating on it and it's, it's the same idea in the summer so it's all the same water and the, and the concept is that the water that you play on could also be the water that is coming out of your spigot on the front range and watering your lawn so that's the perspective we'd like people to have and water just doesn't come from your spigot it comes from a whole system in an arid state
1: Thank you, Jim Pokram with the Colorado River Water Conservation District. We have another question here from Doug from Westcliff. Doug, you're on the line. Thank
4: you. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, this question probably is is best for James Eklund, uh, and it's sort of a multi-part question. <clears throat> and I'm wondering how uh, you expect that the some of the outcomes from the water plan might affect both state policy and policies of uh, some of the larger municipal water suppliers in the state, and also how it might interact with current water law and how it might affect future water law uh, that's
2: that's a that's a great question doug a lot to unpack there and uh, i'll do my best so the uh, the outcomes that we're hoping for are uh, a to really create a, a platform for progress uh, across all of the topics that we've been talking about here. Uh, we, we know for a fact that uh, the state's policies are uh, constantly changing and evolving every every time the legislature meets. We, we have a slate of water bills that make their way through the legislative process and uh, that's going to continue. And we want to make sure that the uh, folks under the gold dome there uh, have a good menu of options to look at uh, when they start talking about water policy and changes to water law uh, as as uh, Doug pointed out there is a uh, uh, that that's the you, know, when you think of the three branches of government that's the the branch of government that gets to make the law and we implement it on the uh, executive side and the executive branch and uh, we we take that responsibility very respons- responsibility very seriously and we want to make sure that uh, the the laws that they are passing uh, in the legislature and that the governor either signs or doesn't sign uh, are are good for this conversation and for water use in Colorado. Uh, so it's uh, the draft that you see if you go online and you look at chapter 10, you're not going to see a slate of legislative recommendations because this is a draft. And in order to honor the process that we're going through, it's really a grassroots process. We have to get final basin implementation plans and the conversation with folks about what they are seeing that we've already produced in order to inform uh, what those are going to be in 2015. But make no mistake, in 2015, we will have a final, and it will have legislative recommendations that uh, hopefully influence the, the direction we're headed uh, on, on all these, uh, these challenges. Great.
1: Thank you. And we have another question. John's back from Guffey. John, do you have a question for our panelists?
5: No, actually, the underground water, and i am tapped into two different wells that I drilled uh, all back in 94 and just recently in 2008. Um, and it's not an aquifer. It is an underground river. I'm 10 miles from uh, Spinney and 11 miles. And my question basically is, are those underground rivers, and I've had a dowser on both of of them, um, you know, locate it for me, and I've went 200 feet through uh, basalt uh, up here strictly. And, uh, you know, I've hit uh, two 20 gallon minute wells. Um,
1: and he says
5: they are underground rivers. Um, so, my question is do I own that water?
1: James, do you want to address that?
2: Y- you bet, uh, January. So the. Uh, the groundwater, you know, in 1969, Colorado did something that was pretty fundamentally groundbreaking in the West. And we, what we did is we recognized the connection between groundwater and surface water. There are states like California that are just now doing that because of the drought. being You know, it, it took a 500-year drought for them to realize that that was something that they needed to do. So you could drill a well in California, and that wasn't really regulated at all. Uh, not so in Colorado. You you need to get a uh, uh, permit to drill a well. There are exempt wells. That if you're just using it, and it sounds like, I'm not sure, John, if you're just using it for your own personal use or... or it is uh,
5: domestic use only, yes.
2: Okay, so that... that that usually means that you're in a different class of the regulatory structure. Uh, if you're using it to, you know, pump water out of the ground to put on uh, acres and acres of, of uh, productive farmland, that's a different question. But uh, groundwater is uh, regulated by the state of Colorado and uh, the, uh, uh, I'm not real familiar with your your territory there just below Spinney and 11 Mile, but if you're in the alluvial aquifer, we have legally kind of of a regime that talks about whether or not your water, your groundwater, is tributary or non-tributary. If it never hooks up with the surface uh, water, then then uh, and you can you know figure that out through uh, any number of engineering uh, uh, modeling that that you can put to you know bring to bear on your situation. But if if it's not connecting up with the surface, then it's called non-tributary groundwater, and that can. Uh, you know, you can do a lot of different things with that because you're not really influencing the the stream and the other water users on that stream. If it's if it is tributary, well then the opposite's true. You've got to you've got to demonstrate that you're not injuring another water user, and uh, that's the uh, that's kind of the threshold question, I guess, for your situation. Does, it, does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, that
5: sounds like a real nebulous uh, gray area there, determining whether it's tributary or not.
2: Yeah, I mean, the way it works is, you you know, you can hire a, a water engineer, or we've got probably more per capita water professionals in the state of Colorado than any other state. Uh, don't quote me on that, Chris, but I, I, I'm pretty sure that's pretty close. And, <laughs> and uh, we, we, you know, we you, you can hire somebody to come in and take a look at that and they actually have some pretty, you know, it's getting more sophisticated all the time uh, to the point where I think eventually we're going to be doing essentially, you know, MRIs for groundwater where we can figure out, you know, acre foot in, acre foot out. And that, that's important because, you know, if you step back from, from John's specific situation, uh, if you look at the entire uh, aquifer and, and the systems of groundwater that we have in, in Colorado, it's important to know that, you know, if you stick some water in the ground and you store it underground, you don't lose oh, that water to evaporation. So the, uh, the issue and the technology is front of mind, and we need to figure out as much as we can as quickly as the technology will allow us.
5: Okay, well, great. I can't hire my local dowser and uh, have him uh, rubber stamp it, huh?
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, maybe not. Well, if your dowser is that good, then maybe, you know, we should, we should talk offline. Oh, <laughs> well,
5: yeah. Oh, he is. He's he's got right. a bunch of wells for me around here. <laughs> okay. Thank you.
1: Thank you, John. Well, that wraps up our our caller section. We're thrilled with the response that we've had. So if you have a question that you would like us to throw to our panelists, we can do that offline. Give an email to water at kdnk.org and we'll try to connect you with the answers that you want. You've been listening to a statewide
0: call in show as part of Connecting the Drops, a collaboration on Colorado water issues with the Colorado Foundation for Water Education and Rocky Mountain Community radio stations. Our guests have been James Eklund, director of the Colorado Water Conservation Board, and Chris
1: Woodka with the Pueblo Chieftain. Jim Pokrant from the Colorado River Water Conservation District has been my guest in the KDK studio here in Carbondale. Thanks to Evan Perkins, Steve Skinner, and John Banks at KDK, and Joe Balik at and Andrea Chalfin at KRCC. Thanks to the Colorado Foundation for Water
0: Education. You can find out more about our radio series "Connecting the Drops" and read more about the Water Plan in the latest edition of the Colorado Foundation for Water Education's quarterly publication headwaters magazine and you can find out more at yourwatercolorado.org for connecting the drops thanks so much for listening